going to read one of the most famous accounts in the book of Acts. Uh, this one is so well known that even non-Christians know what you're talking about when you talk about a road to Damascus experience or a road to Damascus moment. So if you would, please read today's passage along with me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That's the word of the Lord. Can you bow with me? Father God, I ask in Jesus' name for each person here that we will take what we, what we talk about today, take, take what we learn, and apply it to our lives. God, there's, there's nothing more precious than Jesus. Nothing more precious than Jesus. And his death and resurrection are so precious to us. And we ask, Father, that, that we recognize that he, he is the physical embodiment of your word. He is the word become flesh. And as we study your word today, may it sink in and take root and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So uh, I'll, I'll level with you guys. I wasn't sure how to preach this passage uh, because there's some stuff in here that is super valuable from a theological perspective. But there's also uh, a lot of really pragmatic, concrete things that, that we can glean from this text to help us navigate the Christian life. And so we're actually going to look at both of those things. Uh, so from each paragraph that we just read together today, we're going to look at a couple of practical considerations and then we're going to see how that ties into the inalienable love of God. Anybody know what inalienable means? Can't separate, okay? It's, it's inherent, right? Intrinsic. It's, uh, it's unalterable. It's God's love is part and parcel to who God is, and it can't be modified because no one can ever alter him. God is immutable, meaning he, he doesn't evolve or change in any way. So his qualities, his, his personality, and his character traits, they will always remain the same. And that includes his love. So as we go through this very familiar story, I want you to try to, try to keep this at the forefront in your mind, okay? The, the main focus of this story isn't the future Apostle Paul. It, it's the sovereign love of God as it's expressed through his grace and mercy. 
So uh, I'm going to read that first paragraph again. You don't have to, to read with me this time, but follow along with your eyes if you don't mind. But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the reason that's capitalized is because that's what the Christianity was called at the time. It was the way. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now remember, y'all, this, this, this is the same guy, okay, the Saul of Tarsus, same guy who presided over the stoning of Stephen. Same guy that was going door to door, dragging Christians from their homes, right? And, and the passage tells us a lot about the state, okay, the, the state that, that Saul was in before God opened his eyes to the truth. But really quickly, before we get into that, here are a couple of practical considerations to think on, okay? Number one, this is a reminder that people who follow Christ will always experience persecution in this life. And Jesus made this very clear in several places, and then a couple decades after this, after this story took place, Paul even writes a letter to Timothy, and he tells him that anyone who tries to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to be thrown in prison or tortured, uh, but there will certainly be difficulty because of our faith. If you are a Christian, you're going to experience difficulty. Because for one thing, the devil hates Christians. He hates you. He hates me. Okay? He, he, he will do anything and everything that's within his limited power, limited but considerable power, to cause us to be miserable, to make us ineffective as Christians. He'll do whatever he can. And on top of that, the world is not our ultimate home. We've, we've talked about that a lot. Um, I've been thinking about that song lately, and, and Malcolm keeps putting it in the, <laughs> in the readings at the end of the, the scriptures. If you guys are following along at the Bible readings, he keeps quoting that. And, you know, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Uh, you know, and, and because this world is not our, our ultimate home, we're going to be rejected. We're going to be mocked. Because of our faith. And even our own bodies betray us, right? I'm not just talking about y'all getting old, okay? I'm talking about our bodies betray... Y'all, not me. No. <laughs> y'all, our, our flesh, our carnal nature. You know, in the NIV, it's translated sinful nature. Okay? It's, 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 the word is sarks in Greek. It's, it's our flesh. It is betraying us, right? Leading us into temptation. And, of course, the Holy Spirit within us groans, because we're surrounded by sin on a daily basis, not just in us, but around us. And so, so, friend, listen to me. If you are not bothered by the wickedness in the world around us, then please consider whether you are actually trying to live a godly life. It should bother you. The fallenness of the sinful world should bother you. Another point to consider is the nature of Saul's systematic persecution. Of Christians, right? I mean, he, he's been house to house in the capital of, of Judea, you know, in Jerusalem. And now, now he's gotten even more authority uh, from none other than Israel's top religious leader. That's who the high priest was. He was way up there in the hierarchy so that he could go, so Saul, so that he could go to the next major city and hunt down more believers. And this is a reminder, church, that, that this is true. Widespread persecution is always state-sponsored or state-sanctioned. 
Find an example in history when that's not the case, and I'll be surprised. I mean, if you, if you look throughout history, you will see that this, this was certainly apparent in the 20th century, right? You know, where, where Marxist socialism and communism and fascism all led to, to dictatorships, where people would end up being murdered by literally the millions. And of course, for, for the worst periods of persecution in church history, we, we see the first hundred years of church history was absolutely awful for the church. And then there's a particularly dark you know, cloud somewhere uh, around the time of the Reformation when Catholics and Protestants were killing each other and then Protestants and Protestants were killing each other. And basically every time, in every case, persecution of the church was sanctioned by the government, whether it was the native government or uh, a government that was invading, such as, for instance, the Taliban right now in Afghanistan. This is important for believers everywhere to recognize this because we need to pay attention to what's happening in our respective nations. We need to be keeping our eyes open to seeing what's happening in the world around us. Okay, and I know, I know taking part in politics is frowned upon by some professing Christians because they think, well, you're trusting Caesar for your peace, whatever. But the fact is, God has placed us in a country that is blessed to be able to choose our own leaders, at least on the surface. <laughs> um, but we have the ability to have input into who is elected in our nation. And we have every right, I believe as Christians, we have every right to vote for, for the person that we believe is the most likely to lead our nation in a godly direction. Now, it's dangerous when, when people conflate politics with faith, because they're not the same thing, okay? And it's also wrong to assume, though, that there's no relation between the two. For instance, supporting a pro-choice candidate is to support the murder of pre-born human beings. You understand that? Okay, so some would argue that we shouldn't vote at all. In fact, I have a, a, a friend... <laughs> He keeps posting on my Facebook that it's, it's evil to vote. He says, you shouldn't vote at all. Um, I think he's wrong. I disagree very much. You know, his, his point is every candidate's a sinner. Yes, that's true. It's true. Every candidate is a sinner. So I think we should recognize this. Anytime we vote, we're literally supporting the lesser of two evils. At least that's what we believe, right? We are literally supporting who we believe is the lesser of two evils. And if your conscience is clear on that, which mine certainly is, then I highly recommend exercising your right to vote. Okay? And the fact is, listen, if you bring a paycheck home to your family, then there's an extent to which you are already supporting evil because there is no one righteous, not even one. Amen? No one righteous. That includes your adorable family. That includes you. That includes me. No one is righteous apart from Christ. Anyway, if you want to talk more about that later, call me. Okay, so um, we're going to keep going. I, I believe that this scripture has a lot to tell us about Saul of Tarsus. Okay, and as such, it reveals the state of mind and heart for those who are, those who are hostile to the gospel. Okay, since, since Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them, then it makes sense that anyone who is not hostile to the gospel has been predisposed to be that way by God, whether, whether at creation or by supernatural intervention. So, so most people in the world are going to be hostile to the gospel because they, like Saul at this point, are unregenerate 
people. I'm going to define that, okay? An unregenerate person is someone who has not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God through faith and hence is not born again. You're familiar with that that phrase, born again. That's what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3. He says no one can enter the kingdom unless he is born from above. And you might talk to Christians sometime who misunderstand this, and they say, well, I'm Christian, but I'm not born again. What they might mean is they're not fundamentalists. But if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. Period. Because an unregenerate person is living without the light of God's Spirit, the unregenerate person is spiritually backwards in their thinking. Okay, now, and here's what I mean. Even a person who might be like, Uh, devoutly religious, if they're not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they are deceived about what is right and wrong according to God's will. In fact, Jesus told the disciples uh, that they would be put out of the synagogues, and then he topped that off by saying, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, (laughs) right, will think he is offering a service to God. I mean, that's what I mean by backwards thinking. If you look at verse 1 again, I mean, it, it, look at the description of, of Saul. He was breathing out threats and murder. Against who? Against the followers of the way. Against the disciples of Jesus, Christ himself being the way. Saul is seething with hatred, not toward murderers or rapists or the New England patriots. He, I'm sorry. No, he's, he's towards these, these peaceful, grace-filled disciples of the Lord. That's who he is seething with hatred toward. This is the opposite of making sense. And yet it's exactly what we're seeing in so many places in the world today. We're observing that in, in a cultural shift in our own country right now in America. Spiritual backwardness. And to, to complement his faulty view, Saul of Tarsus is passionate in his dislike of Christianity because as an unregenerate person, he is capable of zeal without knowledge. And I want to back up. I think we as Christians sometimes think that that those who hear the gospel uh, but don't accept it, we think that it's just that they're non-responsive. And here's the thing. You know, maybe, maybe we think they don't care, right? Maybe uh, uh, we think it's, it's apathy, but what if it's less about apathy? Than we think, because you know what apathy actually means. It's it, the, the Greek basically means without pathos, without emotion. Okay, and the fact is, most people are are pretty passionate about whatever they think is is right, and whatever they think is wrong, whatever they think is true, or whatever they think is false. And I think most people have zeal without knowledge. Most people have zeal, passion without knowledge. Because several years uh, after this, when, when Saul, this time he's the Apostle Paul at that point, he wrote to the church in Rome, he described his unsaved countrymen like this. He said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, referring to the Jewish nation, is that they may be saved. And by the way, if anybody ever tells you that Jewish people are saved even if they reject Jesus, here's your proof that's false. Okay? Just want to point that out. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, that's key, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now remember what we're talking about here, okay? Remember who we're talking about. This this is the same Paul who elsewhere, remember he, he talks about his pedigrees, 
you know, how he's such a, he was such a great Jew. He was such a, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was this great Pharisee. He's his credentials for being essentially the perfect Jew. But then he said, the Greek literally, he said, that's all feces compared to knowing Christ. That's an important distinction. All the stuff that matters in the world, skubala, the Greek, compared to Christ, compared to knowing Jesus. But back here in Acts 9, Saul is still trusting in his own righteousness because he thought that he was the perfect Jew, and he was, except he wasn't perfected in knowing Christ. And so he was wrong on so many levels. How can a person be so completely misled? Scripture tells us, okay. Scripture tells us a person who doesn't have God's spirit has not been made a new creation in Christ Jesus, right? 2 Corinthians 5. Okay, so, so they suffer from an unregenerate heart. Okay, now we know what unregenerate means. We just talked about that. What is the heart? The heart is the seat of our emotions and desires. It's where our passion lies, literally. <laughs> and as much as people hate to hear it, let alone accept it, <laughs> God himself said that the heart of man is evil from his youth. And that's not letting you ladies off the hook, by the way, because we're made of the same stuff, okay? If you're not sure where that shows up in Scripture, I'll tell you, the Lord said it all the way back in Genesis 8. He said the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, does that mean that, that every thought that a person has it is, is evil in that sense. No, what, what it's saying is that the direction, the trajectory of a natural person's heart is away from God rather than toward him, okay? And the irony here is that is, it seems like we would know that, you know, that we would go, oh, wow, I'm really not a good person. It seems like we would know that, uh, you know, like if our hearts are evil, shouldn't we know? Well, maybe, if it weren't for the fact that the heart is also deceitful and desperately sick. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. I know it's possible that, that this may be offensive to someone in here, to hear, you know, and, and part of it, listen, okay, because ever since... We've been little kids. Most of us here grew up with people telling us and Hollywood telling us that our heart is our moral compass. And so we've been told this sick lie, follow your heart, right? Because it's never wrong. Oh, it's such a lie. Such a deceptive, heinous, wicked lie that our hearts are never wrong. Folks, why do you think so many people follow their hearts into sexual immorality? Or into, uh, you know, things as bizarre as gender reassignment surgery. Folks, don't get me wrong. The, the unregenerate heart is a moral compass. But see, it's true north is pointing the wrong direction. That's the problem. And we're not able to see it. Because when we're living in the flesh, we're blinded. We're deceived by our own desires, which our own desires are literally where sin comes from in the first place. Right? According to James chapter, I want to say four. 
So if that statement offends you about the heart, then please recognize that again, it's God himself who made this statement about the heart. He refers to it as deceitful above all things. That includes politicians. Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And then he goes on to say, and who can understand it, right? And in the next verse he says, I can. But the implication there is, y'all can't. And we can't. We cannot understand our own hearts. And why do folks have such a hard time recognizing that we're, we're just not good people in ourselves? We're not. People don't understand because our minds are not renewed. People whose minds have not been renewed don't recognize that their hearts are unregenerate. They don't understand because they're not born again. Hopefully everyone in here understands because we're born again. Without the Holy Spirit, guys, listen, we, we would still be in rebellion. We would still be in, we would be fighting, actively fighting against God, against our Lord. Because we'd have an unregenerate mind, which does not and cannot, Scripture says, submit to God's law. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, I, I thought Paul said he was righteous, according to the law. That's true. Paul did say that. On the outside, he's referring to, I believe, on the externals, because that's what mattered to him. He was zealous for God's law. Okay? He probably lived up to, to all of the external things that would be expected of a good, a good Pharisee. You know, he, he, uh, he, he didn't, uh, he, he didn't you know, smoke and chew and go with girls to do or whatever. He, you know, he would do all the things that he was supposed to do as a friend. He would tithe from his mint and dill and all of that stuff. And yet he was torturing and killing Christians. Does that sound like a good guy? I mean, this, this is the man who was, whose mind was captive to sin. In Acts chapter 9, the same apostle later wrote that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's Romans, what, Chris? Romans 8, 7. It's probably up, yeah, it's up there. Okay. <laughs> Good job, Chris. That's really important. It, it's not just that fleshly-minded people don't submit to God. They can't. It's not even possible. It can't be done. Okay? Now, why is that? You know, you might, well, why can't they just decide to submit? Because they don't even realize that they're in the flesh. Again, Paul himself wrote this. He wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said, a person without a Holy Spirit renewed mind doesn't even comprehend spiritual things. Now, I want you to, to, to pause there for a second. I mean, you know, you can keep writing it if you're writing it, but, but just... I want to be clear about this, okay? This doesn't mean that they can't understand spiritual con or biblical concepts, okay? And, it, and it, it, it doesn't mean that they're not able to make sense of a doctrinal position in their mind. It just means they're not going to accept them for what they are, which is the actual things of God. They're not going to receive them. In the passage I'm referencing here, uh, Paul said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. In other words, he thinks they're all foolish. And he is not able to understand them as transformational because they are spiritually discerned. Without the Holy Spirit, we, we, we don't have eyes to see. 
Even if we can wrap our brains around what the Bible says, it, it won't be real to us. And by the way, um, if you're wondering what this has to do with you, it's a reminder, okay? Either or both <laughs> of where you and I once were, because we've all, you know, we've all rebelled against God's truth at some point, but it's also a reminder of where you and I currently are because we all still sin at times. So we need to recognize where we've come from, assuming we're not still there, okay? And also the danger that, that's inherent in giving in to the sinful nature that still inhabits our bodies. We're still tempted daily. By moment by moment, probably. We're tempted to sin. And I want you to keep, keep a watchful eye for the evidence that you're succumbing to the old man. You know, to the person that you used to be. Person that I used to be. And, and, and when we've been saved, we are called, we are commanded to set that aside and to be clothed with Christ. Okay? All right, that was a long point. The other two are shorter. Um, but we need to be on the same page first about human nature, okay? Uh, and this, this is why people, people who think they're in the right can be oh so very wrong because of all that stuff we just talked about. Okay, we're going to read on. This, this is the most famous part of the story, all right? Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Okay, again, let, let's look at a couple of practical considerations here first. Um, number one, to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. This fits really well with the, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Matthew 25, you remember that one? Jesus tells people that what they did or didn't do unto the least of these, he says, so it was unto him. Okay, well, well Christ fully identifies with his people, and that makes sense because we are his body, right? He is the head of the church. We are his body. Scripture also refers to us as his bride, okay? So we need to understand that Jesus takes it personally when his bride is under attack. Jesus takes it personally when somebody hurts one of us. That's a good reminder because it's, it's comforting. Honestly, it's comforting for us to know how protective Christ is of his own. And it's also, it's also a really good reminder of how important it is not to mistreat one another. Those of you parents with more than one child know that one of the most frustrating things is when your kids don't get along, when they act hatefully or hurtfully toward each other. It hurts your heart hurts your heart. Saul learned this. He wasn't one of God's children yet, but he, he learned this. Now, you, you know, the, the immediate lesson here, I think it's right here in this paragraph, right? Because Paul, he, he spent years, right, suffering for Christ in much the same way that he caused others to suffer. And we could argue that it makes sense, right, that, that Christ would put Paul through, through all that stuff. 
while he's in God's servant, while he's God's instrument of spreading the gospel to the world. But what doesn't make sense, though, unless you understand the character of God, which hopefully we're learning here, what doesn't make sense is why the Lord would choose the very person who's breathing out threats and murder against his own people, and he would turn him into the greatest evangelist in history. It just seems bizarre. And it all comes down to the inalienable love of God. God is not stymied by the stubborn wickedness of men and women, is he? He might have a setback here and there, but he knew it was going to be there, didn't he? God is sovereign. Scripture says he cannot be thwarted. No, and, and Paul, Paul is an amazing choice here because in the God showed how, how willing he is to extend mercy to even the most hostile of adversaries. And man, is that encouraging for sinners like us, right? <laughs> you see, church, the, this passage reveals that the mercy of Christ extends even to us, weak, ungodly sinners, his enemies. And again, maybe that doesn't you know, sit well with you, but, but bear with me, okay? Because th this isn't my opinion. These aren't my words. This is the truth of God as written in his word. Okay, we actually read this from earlier today, but let's look again. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Scripture says, Christ died for the good people? No, for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still not righteous, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's the beauty the beauty of the gospel, the, the amazing message of the power of salvation for those who believe. And then Paul continues, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, yes, enemies, hostile to him, spurning his love, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? Friends, Jesus Christ died for our sins so we don't have to suffer the eternal consequences of our rebellion against God. But more than that, because he rose from the dead, we who believe will too, because God raises the spiritually dead. And one day he'll raise the physically dead too. This is important. I, I want to say this in case all the, all the words in the last part didn't hit home. Because <clears throat> you might look at those and say, well, I may be a weak and ungodly sinner and an enemy of God, but at least I was smart enough. At least I was good enough. At least I, I was whatever enough to say yes and take hold of that lifeline that Jesus threw. L listen to me. Listen. Dead people don't say anything. Dead people don't do anything. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we once walked. And the next two verses talk about how, how we followed the way of the world. We followed the devil. How we lived for carnal passions and were, it says literally, by nature children of wrath, but God. Right? Whenever those two words show up, pay attention, right? But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
Praise God. Praise God. And his very next words are, it is by grace. Finish it for me. That you've been saved. And it is by grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2.5. He reiterates it again. Ephesians 2.8. Right? By grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. He goes on to say it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then he tells us, but guess what? You were saved to do good works that God prepared beforehand. It's all right there. It's all right there. Here's the thing. God did this. We were weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, spiritually dead, just like Saul in today's passage. And yet because of his great mercy, the Lord has made us alive together with Christ. Now listen, friends, I, I'm not sharing this to make you feel beat down or, or you know, so that you'll feel worthless because the very fact that Christ came to save sinners shows how worthwhile we are to God. You understand the difference between worthwhile and worthy? God is worthy. He considered us worthwhile. He loves us in spite of our will and, and our lack of will to serve Him, in spite of our inability to submit to Him. And He is worthy of our thanks and worthy of our praise because He still draws us to Himself. That, that's mercy. That's mercy. In fact, this, this paragraph, uh, this passage, shows us that God's mercy is so great that he's, he's willing to break a few eggs to make an omelet, if need be, as the saying goes, right? I mean, here, here's what I mean by that. In his mercy, God, this is a merciful act. Bear with me. This is in his mercy. God humbles and even humiliates the proud. I want to point this out here, okay? Because a lot of times when you talk about the sovereignty of God and you talk about God's choice, people say, well, then, well, then we're not responsible for it. No, you are absolutely responsible to respond to God's mercy and grace. You must do that. Just want to make sure we're on the same page there. God doesn't make you a robot and stick a battery in you. You respond, but God sometimes has to break you. Anybody, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Anybody ever been in a place where you just thought you were smooth sailing, doing a great job as a Christian, then you fell into some miserable sin and you were destroyed. And God used that. He crushed you. And he used that to draw you to him. Praise God that in his mercy he humbles the proud. Amen? Remember, Paul had lots of reasons to be confident in himself. Probably more so than we do. <laughs> you know, you may feel like you do too. You know, my grandpappy was a preacher, you know. It's, listen, self-confidence can be a major problem. Self-confidence is can be a major issue because if pride is a stumbling block, then God may have to brutally tear it down before you're going to respond to his mercy, especially, especially if that pride is self-righteousness. Okay, because remember, Saul is convinced he's, he's, the, he's the penultimate Jew. He's the perfect example of one of God's chosen people. And yet instead, he's persecuting and grieving the very Lord he thought he was serving. 
Do a quick inventory of your own Christian life. Just think through the way that you worship, the way that you think about yourself and about God. Are you trusting in your goodness? Or are you trusting in Christ? Scripture tells us in more than one place that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, it's, it's, it's probably better in some ways to not have to be blinded by the light, right? Some of you are singing it in your head right now. <laughs> Paul was, though, because God will do what it takes to accomplish his will. So you don't want to push him. Okay, let's read the final paragraph uh, one more time. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, we, we, we learn later in Scripture that they also saw the light, but not the person of Jesus, okay? And, and they heard the voice, but they didn't understand it. And that's important in just a moment. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Okay, once again, a couple of quick practical considerations here. The first one we already noted, which is people can experience the same spiritual events differently. People can experience the same, way, the same spiritual events differently. Because remember, Saul is blinded by the light, and he had an actual conversation with Jesus. But the other men that were there, they didn't have that same revelation. I think this is probably normative. You know, I've often observed that, that people in the same worship service will have entirely different reactions to it. There are some times where you go, I don't know what caused that, you know. The Holy Spirit must have just broken me in that moment because all of a sudden you're weeping when you're, you're, you're hearing the words and singing the words about Christ's death for you. Or you'll see somebody else, and for some reason, singing doesn't do it for them, but maybe serving does. We all experience things differently. And sometimes I, I think it's due to a person's level of spiritual maturity, but that's not always the case. You know, sometimes it might be due to life circumstances. It, it may also be that God, that God speaks specifically to one person and not another in a moment. You know, I mean, I, I've, had, I've had times where I felt like the sermon kind of fell flat, and then one of you will later say that, that, that it spoke into your life very personally. And so, y'all, that, that is the power of the Lord. That's the power of God. Let that encourage you. Okay, if you, if you ever feel like you or you feel like maybe someone you love is, isn't responding appropriately to a worship service or to a message, that, then just remember God speaks to us differently at different times, at different stages, and it's all in His timing. Okay? Okay, remember that. Secondly, notice that God expects us to respond to His revelation. Touched on that a minute ago. In Saul's case, he made sure of it, right, by literally blinding Saul so that there really wasn't any doubt in Saul's mind of what was happening here. I mean, you know, he, he couldn't just get, say, I must have dreamed this, right? And then God ordered him to go and wait in a certain place for what was next. And so to paraphrase what I said a couple of minutes ago, you don't want to be so hard-hearted that God has to physically disable you in order to get your attention, and yet, that said, it's better to be crippled physically in this life than to go to hell. And so, if that's how God gets a hold of you, totally worth it. 
right? It's worth it. But whatever the case, if, if you're in the middle at any time of a refiner's fire, act like Saul did, okay? Respond the way Saul did. Here, from, from his example, we see that the humble or the humbled person must recognize his own helplessness, okay? Paul, uh, Saul, still at the time, went from leading the pack, right, to being led by the hand, he was in charge of this group of guys. Now they're leading him around by the hand because he's blind. I'll bet that was humiliating for a guy that was used to being in charge. But God, God uses that. In order for anyone to turn to Christ, we must recognize our own helplessness in order to receive help. We are helpless to save ourselves, and so we need Jesus to be saved. As Peter said back in Acts chapter 4, he said, there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, right? So own it. <laughs> own your helplessness. And then respond by humbling yourself further. This is what Paul did. When, when he behaved like a person in mourning, right? I mean, he was lying on the ground and fasting. And this, this is universally understood to show repentance and dependence on God. Okay, so, so church... Recognizing our own need, that's not just important for salvation, but for every day as a Christian being sanctified, we have to recognize our need for Jesus or we won't grow. We should remind ourselves daily of that need by confessing our inability to God and asking him for help. You know, the book of James says, humble yourselves in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's a solid promise. Okay, finally. Saul was fasting with purpose. He wasn't just like on a cleanse or something. You know, I mean, like his, his, he was looking for more revelation from God. He was looking for more answers to show him how wrong he had been. He was looking for a new understanding of what was right. And next time we're going to talk about how God faithfully responded to Saul. But for today, I just want you to be encouraged, friends, to sincerely seek God and his truth. Sincerely seek God and his truth. Saul was in the wrong, and God revealed that fact to him. And so Saul understood, wow, I'm a sinner in need of his Savior. But he didn't have the whole picture yet. So what did Paul do? Or Saul? He didn't have the whole picture yet, so he made it his number one priority to get the whole picture. He gave up food and drink. For three days and lay on the ground meditating and praying because this was a very serious subject at hand. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Was he who he really claimed to be? Everything, everything depended on that. Was Jesus who he said he was? Everything depends on this for us too. Saul knew how wrong he'd been about Jesus, but what would happen next? What, what was that going to mean for the rest of his life? And then this is, this is it, friend. Listen, this matters, okay? Don't straddle the fence about Jesus. Don't straddle the fence about Jesus. If, you, if you're here today, it's because the Lord drew you here. If you're watching online, it's because the Lord drew you to watch online. Don't, don't miss this. Okay? You're here because the Lord drew you today. And please listen. It may not be today, 
but one day will be your last day on earth. It will be your last day. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be 50 years from now. Don't put it off to seek God. Don't put it off. Seek God. Sincerely seek His truth about Jesus. And you, you don't have to understand everything about everything, okay? You don't have to, to have that, that perfect knowledge. In fact, you're not gonna. I'll just tell you that. You're not gonna. <laughs> Even after 40 however many years that I've been a believer, I don't have perfect knowledge. I don't claim to. Hopefully you're in the same place. <laughs> you know you don't have perfect knowledge. That's not what's required. It's to know Jesus and belong to him. That's what's required. The Lord does say, though, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's the verse that's two behind this one that gets all the press, right? You probably know Jeremiah 29, 11. That's the one everybody talks about before. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You know, it, it's a good verse. Most of us probably weren't in Babylonian captivity, right? So a lot of times we'll apply that to our lives and think of it as God wants me to prosper. Okay, you know what? What does he say right after that? He says, and when you seek me, you're going to find me. When you seek me with all your heart, he says, I will make myself known to you. Seek him. Seek his truth about Jesus. So what are you going to do with this? With all, you know, are you just, are you, do you feel nice and informed now? Because that's nice, but the, the point is to be transformed. Transformed. Not just informed. So my question for you is, what next step is God calling you to? Because remember, God draws us. We need to respond. He opens our eyes. We need to respond. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you have, have you confessed it publicly and been baptized by immersion as Scripture teaches? If you have, are you walking in obedience, having repented of your sins? 